0: Amen and thank you worship team Would you open your Bibles this morning to uh, the little book of Titus We're doing a series of studies on this book of Titus and we've reached chapter 2 So I invite you to open to Titus chapter 2 And we're going to read the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2 Would you follow along as I uh, read these verses for us Remember Paul is writing to Titus, and this is what he says, starting at verse 1. He says, you, Titus, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and endurance. You know, I might have expected that he would say faith, love, and hope there, because that's his usual trio. But He's speaking to older men and older men sort of need a little bit more than hope. They need the endurance as well. So faith, love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent. That word for reverent uh, really means something like to act like a temple priestess, a woman who's serving in the temple. Likewise, teach the older women to be like women serving in the temple in the way they live not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they will urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be gentle uh, subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled and now he turns to Titus himself and says and in everything Titus you set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching show integrity Seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed Because they have nothing bad to say about us And then verse 9, teach slaves. Now, remember in the Roman Empire, probably two-thirds of the Roman Empire consisted of slaves. And most of the people that attended church probably had slave background. And so he's talking to a large group here. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted, so that... In every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, remember the theme of Titus that we introduced a couple of weeks ago? Titus is attempting to teach us how to live Christianly in a world that's forgotten how to be good. And in chapter one, he focused primarily on teachers and Pastor Rick talked about that a little bit last week, that the teachers are to set an example, to be a pattern for what it means to be good so that the world leaders can also learn how to live good lives. Now in chapter two, we've moved to a different group of people. Uh, we, We probably would call them a household. Now household is a little different than the extended families even that we talk about today. We think in terms of nuclear family, mom and dad and the children and maybe throw in an aunt and uncle or something like that. But a household was a bit larger than that. It was kind of a working unit. Uh, it included servants and slaves and, uh, uh, and maybe even some, some of the animals uh, uh, on, the, on the homestead would be included in the household. It was a working unit. And the household is what Paul is addressing in chapter 2. Now, if you remember, households were sort of the foundation for many of the churches. And so Paul could actually be, through Titus, addressing a local church here in chapter 2. So he's talking about households, which includes families, which may include a local assembly like ours. He's trying to teach them what does it mean for a group like that to be good in a culture that's forgotten how. Now, one of his goals, you find it in chapter two, verse one. He says, I want you to teach doctrine. uh, I want you to teach behavior that is appropriate to sound doctrine. In other words, he wants to teach people how to live in such a way that their behavior corresponds to the things they believe and teach. And then he says uh, this to several different groups of people. He's talking to older men and younger men uh, and older women and younger women. And then to the teachers in the church and then to this group that's referred to as slaves and he has primarily three concerns in mind in verse five he's concerned so that no one will malign the word of god he doesn't want anybody to be able to nay say scripture because of our behavior he doesn't want anybody to be able to poo-poo the bible because of the way we live And then he says, and I don't want to be anybody to to say anything bad about us. That is about the church, about people that attend the church. He doesn't want them to be able to point into our churches and say, oh, that group, they're just made up of a bunch of hypocrites. He doesn't want that to happen. So he wants us to live well in the world so that that won't take place. And then he says in verse 10, and I want you to make the teaching of God and our savior attractive. To those people that are on the outside and the word attractive is the word same word we get the word cosmetics from in other words i want you to make it beautiful i want you to make it presentable i want you to give it in the best possible light it's sort of like taking a diamond and placing that diamond in a ring that sort of enhances its beauty i want you to begin to live like that with your behavior Now, there are other reasons for living the Christian life that are spelled out in the New Testament. Right here in chapter two, though, the focus is on our behavior in the world. And especially as behavior in the world impacts those three areas I've talked about. He wants us to reflect well on God and the gospel. And it doesn't always work like that, does it? I remember a, a conversation I had with a young lady, I was on an airplane flight and uh, uh, on these flights I often take books, I, I love to read and I'm always reading Christian books and I happen to have one of those books with me when I was on this particular flight and the lady next to me, young businesswoman, saw that I had that book and she saw that it was a Christian book and she immediately introduced herself to me and launched into this against all religion of all sorts in the world. She was against, you know, the crusades that the Christians had been involved in. She had something negative to say about the Inquisition. She reminded me of the burning of the books and the witches and all the horrible things that the church has done. And then she raised the scandal of the priest that's been going on in our own generation. And she just could not stop. She just kept going and going and going, sort of like that little Energizer bunny. And I just couldn't get a word in edgewise. I wish I could tell you that I was able to share the gospel with her, but she just would not stop. And I remember thinking to myself, how in the world do you make an impact on people who feel so negatively about Christianity, things of religion? How do we impact people like that? Well, as believers, we know that the gospel is finally proved by the Holy Spirit uh, and His work in a person's life. But what Titus 2 is attempting to point out to us is that the Spirit uses ordinary lives, lives like our lives, lives like the kind of people he's describing, older men, older women, young men, young women, teachers, slaves, ordinary lives of God's faithful people for them to be a pointer to the gospel for others. And so I'm just gonna call this four marks of a life that attracts people to Christ. And the first mark I see here in chapter two, verse two, Paul is talking to older men, but I don't think we can limit it to them. He says, teach the older men to be temperate. And here's that first phrase, worthy of respect. Now, in truth, that phrase, although it's only applied to older men, actually that phrase captures the essence of what he's saying about everybody in the rest of this chapter that we've just read. What he wants us all to do is to live in such a way that our lives uh, are respectable lives, that our lives bring uh, uh, something to the gospel that touches people in a way that impacts them positively. How does that work? Do you remember uh, Eric Little? You remember probably the movie, uh, The Chariots of Fire, uh, where Eric Little was uh, a runner in the 1927 Olympics. Now the movie hasn't been around for a long time, but perhaps you've seen the DVD or, or the video. Uh, Little, and the rest of his story is that after that movie was filmed, Little went on to be a missionary to China. Uh, he served there for a number of years until in the 1940s, in 1943, he was imprisoned in a Japanese camp. Uh, he was surrounded, he was gathered up with a lot of other Westerners, and because they were non combatants, they were just thrown in this camp uh, where he was uh, uh, just held as a prisoner. And he was there for the next couple of years, and as a matter of fact, that's where he died. He died there just before the end of the war from a brain tumor. Well, 20 years later, A MAN NAMED LANGDON Gyoki. NOW LANGDON Gyoki BY THAT TIME HAD BECOME A PROFESSOR AT THE UNIVERSITY OF CHICAGO AND HE PUBLISHED A BOOK ABOUT HIS EXPERIENCES IN THAT SAME CAMP THE TITLE OF THE BOOK WAS SHAN TUNG COMPOUND AND IN THAT BOOK HE DESCRIBES WHAT HE KNOWS WHAT HE SAW HAPPEN IN THE LIFE OF ERIC LITTLE NOW YOU HAVE TO KNOW THAT LANGDON Gyoki WAS A LIBERAL THEOLOGIAN AND HE HAD VERY LITTLE RESPECT FOR ANYTHING EVANGELICAL HE WAS NOT A BELIEVER HE DIDN'T PROFESS TO be a believer. In fact, he poo-pooed the evangelical movement. But when he saw the life of Eric Little, that life stood out to him and he included it in this account of his. He said in his account, according to uh, uh, Giochi, Little was always helping people. He was always giving himself to make other people's lives easier, especially the young people in the camp. You know, the youth had nothing to do. There were no ping pong tables. There was nothing for them to to gather around. And so hour after hour, day after day, their lives were just filled with boredom. And it was little more than anyone else that tried to enter into their lives to help them overcome that. Well, uh, Gilkey says this about Little and his activities. He says, rarely does a person have the good fortune to meet a saint. But Eric Little came as close to it as anyone I have ever seen. This says, often on an evening, I would pass by the games room and I would look in to see what the missionaries had going on with the youth. Uh, and as often as not, Eric would be over bent over some chessboard or making some kind of a model boat or directing a square dance. He would be absorbed with them. You could tell he was weary. You could tell he was exhausted, but he was interested. And he was pouring all of himself into his efforts to capture the minds and the imaginations of these pent up young people. Eric was in his mid-40s by this time yet he constantly was overflowing with good humor and love of life and he was aided by others but it was Eric's enthusiasm finally that carried the day. Now it was on a cold day in February that Eric died and after his death Gil- Gilkey wrote in his book he says the entire camp especially its young people was stunned for days So great was the vacuum left by Eric's life. We also have an account written in one of the other prisoners' journals, uh, and it says this in that journal account, February 24th, Eric's funeral was today. He was not a particularly clever man. He was not conspicuously able, but he was good. He gave of himself to others. He wasn't a great teacher, he wasn't an inspired thinker, but he knew what he ought to do and he did it. He was a true disciple of the master. You know, I I, I like that. Because, you know, that's most of us, isn't it? We're not particularly notable. We're not particularly great. We haven't done anything particularly noteworthy. And yet what Eric Little demonstrates is by living our lives for the master in those regular, ordinary, routine moments of life, God can take a life like that. And use it it's like the unbelieving Red Cross worker once said to a chaplain on the same camp she said whatever it is you're dishing out at your services over there I need a big dose of it the people that come out of there get under my skin that's the way we're supposed to live wish to live lives worthy of the gospel to get under people's skin by the lives we live. That's the first thing Paul tells us. Persuade attract people to the gospel, I think. Be worthy. Now, the second thing he says in uh, chapter 2, he actually says it two or three times in different contexts. The life that attracts is not just a life that's worthy of respect. It's also a life that's filled with self-control. You can see it there in verse, oh, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I want older men not just to be worthy of respect, but self-controlled. You see the word there then down in verses four and five. He says, I want you to urge uh, older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands. And then verse five, to be self controlled. And then in verse six, he says that again, similarly, encourage the young men to be self controlled. So like uh, this worthy of respect, self control is a second key factor to the kind of life the Apostle Paul is trying to spell out for us here. Now you'll recognize almost immediately that self-control is one of those fruits of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to live a supernatural life? Well, the Bible says it's to live a life filled with the Holy Spirit. And a part of living a life filled with the Holy Spirit is to practice, to exercise self-control. But you know, I've met an awful lot of unbelievers that have self-control. And yet that's not the fruit of the spirit. So the fruit of the spirit of self-control must be something different if it's Christian. And what is that difference? And how does that work? As I was trying to think about how best to illustrate that to you, I do a little editing on the side. I do a little book editing on the side in some of my spare time. And uh, recently I was given a book that included an illustration about uh, the civil rights leader from the 1960s named John Perkins. Uh, In the 1960s, John Perkins uh, was one of those uh, in the forefront of moving into uh, the deep south where black people were despised and hated and treated unjustly. And he wrote a book uh, entitled With Justice For All and tells of one of his experiences. He tells about how he was lured into a trap by a group of police officers, not just local police, but state highway patrol police were involved in this. And he was lured into this trap and he was uh, imprisoned rather quickly and thrown into a jail where he began to undergo beatings. And they started to beat him so severely and so badly that he ended up on the floor actually in a fetal position attempting to protect his vital parts because they were just being that brutal to him. One of the officers actually took out a revolver, took the bullets out, but then Perkins didn't know that, took the bullets out, held it up to his head, and clicked The trigger on the thing and you can imagine what kind of damage that does to you psychologically another one took a fork and dipped it in a particularly filthy place and pulled it out and then jammed it into his mouth what uh, Perkins says he says as I was lying there I thought to myself if any man is justified in hating the people that have treated me this way I am one of those men but then he discovered that the Spirit of God was at work in his life, giving him a different kind of self-control. And he describes it in his book like this. He says, the Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in my hospital bed recovering from that horrible ordeal. And an image began to form in my mind. It was the image of the cross of Christ On the cross, and it blotted out everything else in my mind all the hatred, all the anger, all the frustration. This Jesus knew what I had suffered, He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached, yet he was arrested and falsely accused. And like me, he went through an unjust trial, and he also faced a lynch mob, and he also got beaten, just like me. But even more than that, he was nailed to a rough wooden plank And then he was killed, killed like a common criminal. And at the crucial moment, it seemed that to Jesus, even God had deserted him. Have you ever been there? So desperate that you feel like even the Father has deserted you. He said the suffering was so great for Jesus that he cried out in agony as he was dying. But when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them, he forgave them, and he prayed that God would forgive them. Father, forgive them, he said, for they don't know what they're doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave, and I could not get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth, he says. Jesus's concept of love that overpowers hate I may not see the outcome of that love in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true, he says, because it happened to me. On that bed filled with bruises and stitches and every good human reason to hate, God made it true to me. He washed the hatred away and replaced it with the love of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what Christian self-control is like, and I want you to understand what's involved in there. It's not just learning to be self-disciplined. It's learning to form a certain image in our thinking, a certain pattern of the way we look at life. Tim Keller, in his book entitled The Freedom of Self-Forgiveness, explains it like this. He says, you believe the gospel, Maybe you've believed it for years, but every day you find yourself being sucked back into the reality of fallen life and you want to know what's the answer. All I can tell you is that we have to relive the gospel story every time we pray. We relive it every time we go to church. We relive it every time we feel like that. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves, what are we doing and why? We do this until it becomes more than a habit. We do it until it becomes indelibly burned into our lives. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit implanting the image of Christ on us so that every experience we face, we face it with an attitude like his rather than an attitude that comes natural or that I desire or that I would want. And it takes work. But the Holy Spirit produces that kind of fruit in us. That's the second thing Paul wants us to do. He wants us to live. Having developed this habit of Christian self-control. Now the third thing he points out is that in order for us to be attractive there needs to be a certain connectivity. Uh, I was reading an apocryphal story it didn't really happen but somebody made this up and put it on the internet about a UN uh, survey that had been uh, put it on the internet about a UN survey that had been uh, conducted it only consisted of one question Would you please give your honest opinion about solutions to the food shortage in the rest of the world? And as the survey reporter said, it was a total failure because in Africa, they didn't know what food meant. In Western Europe, they didn't know what honest meant. Uh, in Eastern Europe, they didn't know what shortage meant. In China, they didn't know what opinion meant. And in the Middle East, they didn't know what solution meant. In the United States, we didn't know what the rest of the world meant. In other words, people were coming from all these different perspectives. People have all these various viewpoints. And a lot of that is because of the culture that we inhabit. How is it that we can overcome those cultural barriers? What causes us to overcome culture? Well, Paul is describing different sorts of people. Older people don't have the same mindsets and attitudes as younger people. Uh, Slaves don't think the same way as masters. Teachers don't think the same way as people that are taught. What is it that brings all these people together? And that's the word that I'm looking for, it's connectedness. And the only connectedness that I can find in, in this chapter is the connectedness of a unity of mission the unity of mission is so that no bad thing will be said about God's word The unity of connectedness of mission, be connected so that nobody, an opponent, can't say anything bad about you. The the connectedness of mission is we want to make the gospel look good. Because they all share that same connectedness of mission, because they have all that same ideal together, these people then become attractive uh, for the cause of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I I worked with uh, Sun Life Ministries and I came to know a man, his name is Dan Spader, who is uh, the founder of Sun Life Ministries. And Dan tells an interesting story. He had been reading in one of his evangelism books that uh, in order for our lives to impact somebody else, even to begin to start a discussion with somebody that doesn't know Jesus, there have to be seven touches seven significant interactions with people before our words even count. I said, Dan Spader was thinking about that and uh, while he was thinking, well, now how can I begin on the unbelieving population around me, how can I begin to practice this idea of seven touches in their life? New neighbors moved into their neighborhood. And the new neighbors that moved in happened to be unbelievers. And after Dan and his wife had introduced themselves to them, they found out, well, they needed some landscaping work. And it just so happens that in their congregation, there was a Christian brother who was a landscaper. And so Dan introduced them. There's a second touch. And then it just so happened that this family that had moved in, they needed a family doctor, a physician. And so they introduced them to a doctor that was in their congregation, another touch. And they kept doing this and doing this and they even had a barbecue in their backyard and and, and they just began to pour into this person's life until oh, several weeks later, Dan invited this family to come to church with him. And the man in the family in particular walked in, they sat down in one of the pews, and the doctor that he had met walked up and introduced himself to him. And this man said, you go to this church? And he was so surprised to see him there. And then all of a sudden the landscaper walked up and said, well, hello, how are you? Bob, you go to this church? And he shook hands with him. And, and, and he began to look around, he began to see all these people that had gone to this church. And he said he said to Dan, he turned to him and says, man, I know all these people. These are my kind of people. Well, I just feel like I'm right at home here. And Dan said, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought in my mind, yes, seven touches, drop to your knees. <laughs> now, it doesn't work quite like that. But you get the impression that Dan is making here. There's a certain connectivity. There's this thing about belonging to the body of Christ, about serving together with people that are so different from you. People that don't think like you, that don't talk like you, that don't share the job, same jobs or same interests necessarily, but because we're connected together around the mission that Jesus Christ gives us. There's something about that that is so attractive to outsiders and the Apostle Paul wants us to live like that. And then that brings me to my fourth point. Now, before I do this, I gotta tell you, I got in trouble because I spilled over in my passage a couple of weeks ago and I preached into Pastor Rick's passage and Pastor Rick reminded me, you know, that I had to put a limit on the thing. So, okay, Pastor Rick, I, I understand. But now I'm going to do that again because I'm supposed to stop at verse 10. But I want to do pick up one little thing in, t- in verse 11 of the chapter because it doesn't make sense what I'm saying to you if we don't pick up this word. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. For the grace of Of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people if I leave that out I have failed to proclaim the good news to you you see Paul's practice is normally to tell you a reason for doing something and then tell you that you should do it so you remember in the book of Romans he says I beseech you brethren by the mercies of God there's the reason to present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's the behavior. Now that's normally his pattern, reason first, behavior second. But in Titus chapter two, he gives the behavior first and the reason second. The behaviors are that we're to live a life that's worthy, we're to live a life that's connected, we're to live a life of self-control. But if you don't include the reason that undergirds all those, then all you've really done is to preach a little bit of, you know, well, you ought to do this, you ought to do this, you ought to do this, and it becomes a form of legalism. And so we must include the concept of grace. Grace is the foundation that provides for us the ability to live the life that Paul has just outlined for us, and how does that work? Remember the movie Les Miserables, or maybe some of you've seen the play Les Mis. I had to tell you, I can't recommend those as the best telling of the story. If you haven't read the actual book, and by the way, you can download it for free on the internet, by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, you haven't really gotten the full story because Victor Hugo wrote that from a distinctively Christian perspective, which for whatever reason tends to get washed out in the retelling, in the movies, and so on and so forth. So the way the original story is told is that uh, there's this prisoner. His name is Jean Valjean, and he's a bitter ex-convict who has just been released, paroled from prison. And he stumblingly makes his way to the home of a priest who invites him in and offers him food and shelter for the evening. The priest says something really significant. Now, listen to this. The priest says, this is not my house it's the house of Jesus Christ no one will feel at home here except the person who has need of refuge and everything here is yours now did you hear that statement everything here is yours because it belongs to Jesus Christ Well, Jean Valjean later on, the priest goes to sleep and Jean Valjean has seen all the things that are in that house. There's a set of silver lampstands. There's a set of silverware that's worth a lot of money. There are all these other kinds of goods. And in the night, Jean Valjean sneaks up on the priest and at first thought he's going to kill him. And then he decides, no, I'll just take what I can grab and run and he grabs the silverware and off he goes. Now he's captured. The next morning by a group of police and the police recognize the silverware and they bring him back to the priest. And as they're saying, we brought him back because we're certain he has stolen these goods from you. The priest says, ah, you misunderstand. I have given these things. To this man, and then he turns to Jean Valjean, and he says to him, "You've taken the silverware. Why didn't you take these these golden candlestands, these silver candlestands as well, and everything else that was richly given to you?" And Jean Valjean is standing there, scratching his head. He cannot believe. The police walk away. Jean Valjean walks away and as he's thinking about this, he walks down the road and he commits another horrible crime and then he just repents right on the spot. And he says, how could I, who have been touched so much by the grace of another man, continue to live in this way? Now, do you get the point? That's the undergirding for all it is that we do in the Christian life. God gives us everything richly through Jesus Christ. We can't earn it. It does us no good to try to steal it. We couldn't work for it if we tried to work for it. It all comes to us freely if we will just admit our need and receive it. And when we do, when we do that, then out of that foundation, that basis, that crazy thing called grace, comes this wonderful new motivation and ability and desire and hunger even to live a different kind of life. To live a life that's worthy of respect. Not because we're trying to earn anything, but simply out of the gratitude in our hearts for the grace that's been given. We try to live a life of self-control, not because we think we can earn or merit or prove anything, but simply on the foundation of grace that was given to us freely. And we connect with one another, not particularly because we like each other or think we're trying to prove anything, but because we recognize the same grace that's work in my life is at work in your life, and that gives us a connecting point, a reason, a basis, a foundation to do what we do to see why I wanted to sneak down to verse 11 and steal at least a part of that it's it's the it's the necessary piece without which the rest of the puzzle makes no sense well having said all that I just have to be honest with you I've got to tell you that even sometimes living in the way I've just described a life of you know worthiness a life of self-control and a life of connectedness doesn't always make the kind of impression that we want sometimes people still walk away from Jesus and the things of God. So I'm not making any promises to you this morning. But I am telling you that those are the things, those are the very things that the Holy Spirit does often use to impact people's lives and sometimes significantly and sometimes through your life what he wants to do is to take characteristics just like the traits I've described and impact other people's lives. But whatever the result, Whether the result is people walk away or the result is that people come to know Jesus, Paul tells us that my task, our task, your task is to live our lives in such a way that they are worthy of respect, that they are self-controlled in the fruit of the spirit sense of that word, that they are connected by the unity of the mission we share and most importantly of all because of the foundation of grace that we have together that's the kind of life Paul tells Titus that silences objectors that honors God and that makes the gospel attractive makes me think of Augustine's prayer again oh Lord I want to know you like that oh Lord I want to love you because of that Oh Lord, I want to serve you in that way because of who you are in my life. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, Paul's desire for us and our desire too is to serve you in just the way that's been described here. Would you take this passage and would you make it a part of our new reality, that reality of grace? So that we're fully aware of the lives that we need to live into into a culture that has forgotten how to be good, and so we're in spite of the results that might come one way or the other. Lord, we'll be honest and faithful in serving you in Jesus' name. Amen.